0: Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier
1: planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler.
0: Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing the end of our fourth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here, we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in uh, today's show as we talk to experts in our July series on food production, agriculture, and land use. And today we're going to focus in on food production, challenges to environment and health. And this is a very exciting area, and we're going to delve into it and look at some of the the specifics as it relates to these essential processes. And joining us today are two really smart people who bring a wealth of knowledge and expertise to our discussion. Now, for most of human history, most of the world's land was wilderness, that is forests, grasslands, and shrubbery, and these dominated our landscapes. And they, the landscapes just rolled on and on forever with nobody on them, you know, kind of like you see on some of the, the Western shows. But in the last few centuries, wild habitats have been squeezed out by turning it into agricultural land, which, of course, supports our food production system. Now, agriculture is indeed uh, one of our major land uses. That is the necessary growth of our world's food sources, plants, and animals, and their cultivation in order to get to our tables, nourish our bodies, and soothe our souls. Half of the world's habitable land is used for agriculture, and this leaves about 37% for forest, about 11% for shrubs and grasslands, and about 1% as freshwater coverage, and the remaining 1%, a much smaller share than many suspect, is built up urban area, which includes our cities, towns, villages, roads, and other human infrastructure. Now, the extensiveness of the agricultural use of our land has a major impact on the Earth's environment as it reduces wilderness and perhaps threatens the diversity of all living things upon the Earth, as it continues to sustain pressure for more and more production of food and meat. Just since 1960, the population has almost doubled. And food production, of course, has a significant impact on the environment and on human health at a lot of different levels. The environmental problems that arise from food production include water use and water pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, environmental contaminants and pollutants, depletion of natural resources, soil erosion, and soil degradation. And industrial agriculture tends to harm the environment through uh, pollution of our air, of our soil, and our water and air emissions from livestock operations make up about 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, conventional crop production degrades soil health and causes soil erosion. In the past, it has. And pesticides and other toxins that humans use in food production are indeed impacting our environment and our health. The health impacts of food production are significant also. The use of pesticides in food production has been linked to cancers, birth defects, neurological disorders, and other health problems. And the overuse of antibiotics in animal agriculture has led to uh, some antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can indeed cause serious infections. Now, the global human population is expected to reach almost 10 billion by the year 2050. And as population continues to grow, we face increasing challenges to ensure that people will have access to safe, Nutritious and healthy food. And by the year 2050, food production will need to increase by nearing 50% of the 2012 production levels to meet the expected demand. And of course, food has become a prominent focus in the U.S. public health policy. The emphasis has been almost exclusively on what Americans eat. And I think we're all finally getting this point. We are what we eat. But food, also is seen as medicine and those facts have been proven. But medicine to eat healthy toward, you know, can help us avoid disease and have better detection scores. But not what is grown or how it's grown has not been the focus. And thus we see why we need to know and why we need to understand our complicated food system to which each of us is in an integral and important member. It affects you, it affects me, it impacts all of us. Now, this is a lot, but here today to help us unpack and explore some of this are some very smart people. We have with us Judith McCreary. Judith is an attorney, an activist, and a regenerative farmer. Judith has become a passionate advocate of sustainable agriculture, and she and her husband have established a small farm raising grass-fed beef and lamb, along with garden produce and orchard fruits. In 2006, Judith founded the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. We call it FARFA. And she founded that to promote common sense policies for local diversified agricultural systems. Judith served as the vice chair of the USDA Secretary's Advisory Committee on Animal Health for six years, and she was a founding board member of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Welcome, Judith. And did I get all of that right?
1: Yes, you did. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you so much for making time to to join us. I know you all are getting ready for your big annual conference, which is really an amazing conference, even for people who are not farmers. It really helps to educate the, the, the rest of us as well. So thank you again for being with us. Our other guest is Kurt Rosenstrader. Kurt is a professor at Iowa State University and visiting professor at Montpelier University in France and at Isara School in France where they teach agroecology and I want him to tell us more about that. Kurt calls himself a food engineer. He is a teacher, a researcher, a scientist, an engineer, and an author. Kurt is a multidisciplinary creator whose work encompasses grains, foods, biofuels, beverages, or beverage alcohols, and sustainable approaches to agricultural systems. Thank you, Kurt, for being with us. He's been on our show a couple of years ago. And did I get all that
2: right about you? I think so. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today
0: again, and thank both of you all for being with us. I want to start out, and we don't have a whole lot of time before we go to break, so if I have to stop you, we'll just continue on the, on the other side. But I want to start out with you, Kurt, and if you could tell us a little bit about what are the, some of the key health concerns associated with modern food production methods?
2: So that's a complicated question, and I will sort of respond by talking about context, and location. Okay. So if you're talking about agriculture in the U.S., we've got a very diverse system in the U.S., but we could make it even further complicated and talk about other countries. So I spend a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa working with villagers and small farmers, and the challenges and problems that we see uh, in Tanzania or Rwanda or Malawi are in some respects similar, but completely different than the challenges we have here in Iowa. So the question itself is complicated and the answers, there's unfortunately no one-size-fits-all answer. So agriculture in Texas, agriculture in Iowa, agriculture in Malawi, how do we produce food and agricultural products that can help meet our needs, our children's needs, society's needs? It, It really depends.
0: What are some of the health concerns, though, that may be common uh, across the spectrum as it relates to our modern food
2: production? So first and foremost, nutrition, calories, protein, um, all of the things that we need uh, nutritionally to, to function and to live are important across societies. But then we can ask the question, okay, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, are not extensively used in the United States and other countries, but in many other countries, they're not uh, allowed. They're still illegal to produce uh, or import. So uh, the question about GMOs is a global question. Pesticides and herbicides, we talk about those in the U.S., and we talk about those in other countries as well, because what is used or uh, allowed to be used is different in other countries, and then the question is also, can farmers always afford pesticides and herbicides? And not always. So, humans have been ingenious for thousands of years. We've been growing grain at least 12,000 years or more, and we're we're very clever and ingenious. And uh, the challenges keep reinventing themselves. Whether it's insects, whether it's weeds. And so we, we have to keep ahead of the, the curve, so to speak.
0: So we're playing whack a mole with the challenges. We, we solve them, we whack them out, and then they come back in a different way.
2: Somehow Mother Nature finds a way to work around what it is we, we are doing.
0: Okay. But I want to, and we just have about a minute to go before we go to break. So, but I want to come back and summarize some things that you said, and that was that nutrition, the nutrition that we actually get from the food that is produced is probably a, a global issue. Absolutely. What would you say is the biggest challenge or the causation factor that's affecting the nutrition of the food that we do eat?
2: So in the U.S., we are, are lucky in many respects. We produce a lot more calories than we need. Uh, other countries, the challenge is to produce enough calories. Uh, I know we haven't talked about climate change yet, but uh, many parts of the world are challenged with providing enough calories and with droughts or heat waves they, uh, and potential crop losses. There may not be enough food-produced crops or animals produced to meet the caloric needs uh, on a daily basis.
0: Are are calories the same as nutrition?
2: Absolutely not.
0: Okay, we will take up that on the other side of the break. We're going to go to break now. We've been with Judith McCreary and Kurt Rosenstrader, who are making us smarter. And let's go ahead and give a shout-out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, all natural grocers, all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body, none mercury. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lendentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To today's show on food production, agriculture, and land use as we focus in on the challenges to environment and health of our food production system. And we are back with Judith McCrary with Farfa and Kurt Rosenstrader with the Iowa State University. Again, thank you all for joining us. Now, right before we went to break, Kurt was explaining to us or letting us know that nutrition is not synonymous with calories. Because those are the two challenges that we had talked about or mentioned uh, with our modern food production system. So I think we all understand, well, most of us understand calories. For me, calories is like fat or gaining weight. (laughs) Uh, Nutrition has to do with the quality of our, our food. So talk to us about that really briefly in terms of the,
2: the
0: our modern food production system globally and, and uh, in our country.
2: That's a great question and a great clarification, because what does the human body need? We need protein. We need some degree of lipids, not nearly as much as we currently consume here in the U.S. Uh, we need carbohydrates. We need fiber. We need mi- minerals and vitamins. And so calories are a surrogate for the conversation, but really we need protein and all of these other nutrients uh, for our bodies to function and for for our children to grow and to be, be healthy. And what I think many people are learning, more so in the last several years, is that we can impact our health by the food that we eat. And that's a different question in the U.S. and other developed countries versus what we see in developing countries where they still struggle, many countries struggle to provide basic food supplies on a daily basis.
0: So they're not concerned about the quality so much of, uh, of their food or nutrition. Just give me some food.
2: Um, to some degree, but also I my colleagues have mentioned to me in the past, we're really interested in quality, in nutrition, in sustainability, because we don't want to make the same mistakes you all have made. As we grow our economies, so it's it's interesting discussions for sure.
0: Well, great, amazing. Thank you for that explanation. I want to move on now to to Judith and ask you, Judith, what are some of the key environmental challenges uh, that you see in your work associated with modern food production methods and And how does industrial agriculture intersect with that?
1: well our our conventional food system, agricultural system, what we often refer to as industrial agriculture is that um, well, the conventional one the, well, <laughs> that's the conventional one and they refer to themselves as production ag which i always find amusing because the implication is that the rest of us aren't producing anything so, I know. so they, they, yeah. they, they, they sometimes called production agriculture is essentially a mining operation in many ways um it is mining our topsoils. it is mining our water supplies um it is mining our the nutrition in the soils and so what we've seen over the decades of increasing chemical usage, um, increasing a reliance on GMOs, which is really synonymous with increasing uses on chemical usage in the U.S., you know, theoretically GMOs could serve many purposes in the U.S. What they do is they allow for greater herbicide use and application. What you see is we've, we've lost huge amounts of soil, which really cripples our ability to raise food in the future, and has caused pollution in our water sources
2: um, and, and
1: problems downstream. We have seen water, you know, aquifers depleted. Meaning, again, we're 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 destroying the most basic natural resource that humanity needs to survive with unsustainable usage. And we've seen a lot of toxins put into the air and the water. And th- there isn't the science to say this chemical causes this, and in some cases there are, I mean, you know, there there are a few linkages, Um, but what we know is we have seen skyrocketing rates of cancer and, and all kinds of chronic diseases, and that we see higher levels of many of these cancers, higher levels of Parkinson's, higher levels of childhood cancers in rural communities. Why? Again, there, there are probably a few factors, but one of the big things that rural communities have is huge exposure to these chemicals, because they get it not only through consumption of the foods that have the residues, but in our air, in our water. I say someone living in a rural community, um, I, have an, I, I have an organically managed regenerative farm. We don't use these chemicals, but I know my family's exposed because we live in a community that uses a lot of them.
0: Yeah, you're surrounded Um, by them. Yeah, and the air doesn't stop blowing at your property line,
1: yeah. It doesn't. And we know, again, these affect human health, these affect um, wildlife populations, these affect insect populations and populations. I mean, it was interesting, just a personal small microcosm of it. When we bought this property had been conventionally managed and when we moved on to it, um, the nights were very, very quiet. And in the years that we've run it, good heavens, it's a racket now at night because of all of the frogs and the insect life and the, and the lizards and the birds and everything that has come back to our small acreage, relatively small acreage, from the regenerative management that we do.
0: Indeed. And I was having a conversation with the uh, state agriculture commissioner last Last week, and uh, he did kind of advise me uh, some of what I know, and that is farmers are kind of bought into regenerative farming. Small farmers, individual—well, should I say non-industrial farmers? Is that a correct way, way to say it, Julia? You can go. For yeah, that. <laughs> are, are are bought into regenerative farming, and as he mentioned, they've been doing it all alone. It's kind of a—it's kind of that necessity that is the mother of of things. That we see there but uh, Judith how does it stack up though maybe in the US and maybe around the world the um, industrial farming versus our, our small to medium-sized uh farmers because to me they're the conventional or should I say traditional what's a what's a word for them
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah the traditional the, the would be actually yeah, traditional. regenerative farming mm-hmm. I, I want to hit one thing before I actually answer the question though and I want to mm-hmm. say this. Regenerative ag is traditional ag, and relearning so much of what has been lost. And it is some of the best cutting-edge science I've ever seen. I, I have an undergraduate degree from Stanford in biology, and so, you know the science that goes into modern regenerative is absolutely serious science and great thinking. It's just not necessarily high tech. It is learning and studying the traditional. Regenerative, often indigenous methods that have been there for thousands of years, understanding them in a different way, and and bringing and integrating them into you know our culture and our our communities. I just I can't stand the idea that it's not scientific. I just you know like this, <laughs> the, the information that it's just getting by. But to answer your question, I mean, so first of all, most of the food produced in this world is produced on small acreages. Um, and there are numerous UN reports out there that have looked at it and said the best way to feed the world is with small agroecological-based systems. Um, And agroecological is another system, and Kurt, I think, you know, this is his his bailiwick, but I'll, I'll dive into it a little. It overlaps with regenerative. They aren't identical terms, but it's still based on this idea that you're working with the system. You're working with the natural ecology and making use of it rather than basically just feeding the synthetic chemicals, killing off things with pesticides and herbicides, and, and trying to structure it as, a, as an industrial system. When you get into it, well-run regenerative systems can outperform and outproduce the conventional chemical-based ones. It is not a question we absolutely can produce enough food for our communities locally and for the world using regenerative systems. It takes different different people will make profits. There's less money to be made. There are less profits to be made from the sales of inputs. It takes much more individualized attention to the system. It's not as easy to follow. It's not the, there's not the schedule that you get with the conventional system, but absolutely we can produce enough food. It is not about, Oh, well, can we balance the small farms and then the big farms are the ones that actually produce food for people? It, it, that's, that's a fallacy that's based on really, really, really badly done science.
0: We have just about a minute to go before we go to break. And so I'm going to go back to my minute man, Kurt. <laughs> I always get you right before we go to um, to break. And talk about, uh, Judith mentioned agroecology, and I want to talk about that as well as the quote, what you mean when you say food engineering and how that intersects with modern agriculture and our productivity and industrial farming as well as uh, small farms.
2: This is a set of
0: complicated questions. Yes, it is. (laughs) Uh, I think
2: it's going to take more than a minute. Yeah, if you can start,
0: Um, and we will have to get back with you on the other side because we just do have a minute, I'm being told.
2: So food engineering is a discipline that trains students um, how do you manufacture, how do you process raw ingredients into final food products. Think about, you know, designing slaughterhouses for meat production, pasta plants, uh, food factories, basically. How do you sterilize milk and bottle it and package it and you know think about all different kinds of foods that go through some type of a processing. And that's what, what uh, food engineering is. It's not the genetic modification it's, when you think about genetic engineering.
0: Well, you kind of mentioned another word there that, that kind of puts up a red flag, and that is food processing. So food engineering yep. is, is another word for food processing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And then the idea of agroecology, this is You know, it's as uh, Judith had mentioned, I think we as Americans have developed a lot of technologies over the years, but I think we also have a lot to learn from the rest of the world, especially in terms of uh, working with nature as opposed to against nature.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to go to break now, and we will be right back on the other side with Kurt Rosenstrader with Iowa State University and Judith McCreary with FARFA. Thank you all. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on food production, challenges to environment and health. And we are back with Judith McGarry, who is with the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, FARFA, and Kurt Rosenstrader with Iowa State University. And they really are making us smarter. And we really do have a lot to cover (laughs) as it relates to our, as Kurt keeps reminding us, our complex food production system. So I want to go back to Judith. And you mentioned earlier, as we were talking about GMOs. So I want to kind of talk about some of the risk or intersections with GMOs and other things that are kind of put into our food system and how regenerative agriculture is indeed can and does make a a real difference.
1: So I want to start by saying that almost all of the technologies that we talk about, including genetic engineering, have a theoretical possibility to do positive things. Like there, there, there isn't somehow a, this could never be good. Mm-hmm. But let's be clear about how all of these new technological approaches are are driven in our country. I'll, I'll talk specifically about you know the United States, mm-hmm. and that is it is a for profit focus from a handful of large companies who already have an immense amount of control over the system, and so they fund the research. most of the research at the academic universities is funded by these same companies who stand to profit not only using GMOs as the example, not only from the patented seeds of these ge- genetically engineered crops, but also from, overwhelmingly, the chemicals that they are used in connection with. And so, you know, I get, I, I've had people tell them and say, well, you can't say all genetic engineering is that. I'm like, you're right. I, I, give me specific examples and we can look at each specific example. But overwhelmingly, what GMOs have done is play into a system where what we have is immense amounts of consolidation, and monocultures. So there's a handful of seeds, a handful of plants that is you know, a huge percentage of our food system. And if these plants get hit by an illness, by a disease, by a pest, we've seen over and over and over, over centuries, that outcrossing is vital. And we've lost that biodiversity to outcross. We've lost that resilience. And so before we even get into the question of human health effects of of these GMOs, we have to realize that the system they've built, where there's a handful of companies that control overwhelmingly, you know, the acreage that is planted in this country and the fragility of it is a problem. And then you get into the point of of the health issues. And again, most of the health studies have been funded by these companies. They they pay for the research and decide whether or not to release research. They're overwhelmingly short-term studies that look at animals for a few weeks, maybe a few months, not the entire lifetime that we are eating these foods. And many of the times they aren't even really looking at health outcomes or what we would consider significant health outcomes. So as a contrast, one of my previous board members, Howard Leaguer, did a a great study on the effect of feeding GMO feed to pigs and found effects, numerous different effects but was criticized by industry because he didn't just look at their weight gain. Because, geez, if the animals are gaining weight, well, that's all that matters in industrial production agriculture. Well, I think most people would be like, I I think I might be a little worried about other health issues besides whether I put on enough weight in enough short enough time. That's not how we measure health for humans. Indeed. But that is literally one of the health outcomes that they were looking at and that they criticized him for not looking at. It's deeply disturbing. And, and we don't know all of the effects. And I can't say we do, whether it's GMOs or these pesticides or herbicides. Because again, also one of the problems is all of the studies pretty much that look at the effects of these herbicides or pesticides on human health or animal health, using animal studies, look at them in isolation. We're gonna look at chemical A. Okay, here's the amount of chemical A you can consume before it causes you know kidney failure or organ failure. We're gonna look at chemical B. Here's the amount that chemical B can be consumed before it causes, you know, organ failure or cancer. And we go on and go on and go on. And we know, again, the handful of studies that are there that there are synergistic effects, that when you have chemical A and chemical B and chemical C and you consume them, it can take a lot less of each of them. Cause a health problem, but that's not how we regulate these chemicals in our country.
0: Indeed, uh, we've had a number of folks from environmental health organizations and a number of environmental health uh, doctors and specialists, and they have been ringing that bell. I heard the other week, I think it was week before last, something about biomagnification, you know, that talks about how when the plant uh, gets degraded or something happens to the plant then it, it, it goes on up the food chain such that it, it, by the time it gets to us, its impact is really magnified. We've had a number of environmental health uh, scientists, researchers, and, and physicians tell us about what you just mentioned, too, the add-on when, when a number of things are taken in combination within a human body and how that can affect, too. So that is real life that it is attempted to isolate, it is not real life. <laughs> but anyway, I wanted to uh, go back to something you said too earlier, uh, and that was mining. Tell us a little bit more about mining and what you mean there, and why should people care about that and be conscious of it?
1: So uh, when we think about mining, we think about taking things out that are not being replaced. Okay. Um, you know, coal mining, gold mining, fossil fuel drilling. You know, this is stuff where there's a set amount in the ground or or, or some holding and and we're taking it out. And people don't think of agriculture that way. And they, they shouldn't, because when done regeneratively, we aren't mining. When done regeneratively, what we have in agriculture is something that is not matched in any other industry. It is perpetual inputs of energy. We have the sun giving us energy every single day. And then we have these immense, wonderful energy transformation plants, literally plants, as well as the microorganisms in the soil. We have living things that do this amazing work in taking that energy that comes from the sun and creating products with it. And so when we farm regeneratively, We are not mining. We are utilizing that wonderful energy source to create this food that's produced. But that's not how most of our food is produced. Most of our food is produced by, yes, the energy comes in from the sun, but then it's also being produced through methods such as um, high nitrogen fertilizers that burn up the organic matter in the soil. And therefore, basically what you're doing is you're forcing growth through using up organic matter. Well, at some point that stops working very well, and you're out of organic matter, and you're out of the very thing that allowed the plants to be healthy. It's using up the water. So water is a great example, too, because water usage in, in industry ag is a well-known problem that it's using more water. You know, we're draining aquifers in California. I mean, this is this is well known. And we often think about it, the solutions proposed as sort of damage mitigation, like let's do precision irrigation and use less water by using only exactly what is needed. And that's a good, like better than the previous methods, amen, go for it. But when you look at it regeneratively, if we build organic matter in the soil, we can capture rainwater at an amazing rate. And so instead of simply reducing the damage that we're doing from pumping the aquifers, Farming regeneratively flips the whole thing on its head, captures rainwater, holds it in the soil, you know, improves aquifer recharge, and actually is the reverse of mining. Is putting water, it's helping the water get back into the aquifers. So we have this very, very, I came into this thinking that organic agriculture 20 years ago, I came into it thinking it was about reducing the amount of damage that industry ag was doing. And the truth is, and why I fell in love with it, is it's not about reducing damage. It's about working within these natural systems in a way that completely flips it from being a mining system, a depletion system, to this regenerative approach.
0: Or another word, and we just have a couple minutes to go, and I want to talk about, because here at Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, we find a lot hinges on communication or terminology. And so for the last two or three years, regenerative has been it. And I can tell you, most people outside of us who care about this or <laughs> are into green and healthy living probably don't get regenerative. And, you know, sustainable is another word. But sustainable has been thrown around a lot and perhaps has lost its, I don't want to say its importance but, or its significance, but maybe its meaning to a lot of people. Our audience, the reason we do this is to get ordinary people in their everyday lives to understand be sensitized uh, to environmental issues and its effect on their health and their lives and, and, and so we just find that terms are, are a lot what some other words for regenerative farming Judith oh
1: now you're killing me because i, I have to admit, i thought the word regenerative because i was just, we can't do another term but I, I, you know what came into my head terms history? that it's, maybe people um, can connect with um, restoring and people ask I me, I want, I like how many women have heard about skincare products that regenerate your skin mm-hmm, cells mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. restore restore full vitality? Right. Like, like the idea is to take something and not only sustain it, and this is why mm-hmm. we moved away from the word sustainable in the context, because right. we have a degraded system, Here's a system, picture somebody who's got deep wrinkles mm-hmm. and bags under their mm-hmm. eyes and it's, that you know, like Age mm-hmm. spots and I I'm being mean and actually I, I admire people who age well, but like think of un like somebody who looks like they've been through the ringer, mm-hmm. but the skin's still alive. Right. It can be
2: restored.
1: It can become healthy. The body can become healthy. And we're doing the same with our soils. We're doing the same with our plants. We're doing the same with the agricultural system.
0: Indeed. Good explanation. We're going to go ahead and go to break now, but I like that restorative maybe. Uh, We'll be right back on the other side with Judith McGarry with uh, Farfa and Kurt Rosenstrader with uh, Iowa State University. Thank you all. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the green, healthy, and sustainable living authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, all natural grocers, all center markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at Lyndentalcare.com. Thank you sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on food production, agriculture, and land use as we focus in on the challenges to the environment and to health of our food production system. And we are back today with Judith McGarry, who is with the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, FARFA, and Kurt Rosenstrader, who is a professor at Iowa State University. And they are really making us smarter. Uh, I want to go back now to Kurt. Can you elaborate a little bit on the health risks, though, associated with artificial additives, preservatives, and flavor enhancers in processed foods and, and how your food engineering is helping or moving the field forward in that aspect?
2: That's a really great question. And I think as we move forward, as not just in the U.S., but countries around the world, I think scientists and societies in general are learning more about the impacts of different additives, and you know, an example I think that is really interesting is the case study of Subway and the bread that they use. Uh, and uh, a couple of years ago, in Europe, apparently a court case ruled that based on on the science, they don't sell bread, they sell cake because of the additives, especially the sugar that uh is used in the manufacture of of their their products, but you know that's that's sugar when we think about other things, there are bleaching agents and a variety of different chemicals that are added to to every food that uh, that we eat and you know i I hate to say twinkies, but uh if you ever look at twinkies carboxyl methyl cellulose c m c uh which is a derivative of wood production. Uh, it's used as a preservative, but it's also used as a filler. Uh, that's just another example. I think that the science is really starting to dig into the impacts of these different additives. And you know there, there are a variety of reasons why additives are used in, in different foods, but I think the movement now is to the food industry in general to replace these artificially produced, types of additives with natural. And, you know, food coloring is, is a, a, an item at the moment that is really getting a lot of attention, moving to, to natural pigments instead of synthetic pigments, for example. And then there are also the unintentional additives. And what do I mean by that? Uh, something that's really come to my radar screen this year are different types of PFAS chemicals. I didn't really think much about it uh, until recently. So, you know, PFAS are the perfluoral alkyl uh, chemicals. You know, we think about uh, the nonstick pan surfaces, uh, Teflon, for example, but actually there are several thousand different types of PFAS chemicals that, you know, how do they get in our food system? Well, a lot of different food packaging uses those. Uh, for different reasons, plasticizers, for example, to make the, the plastic flexible. Uh, but then there's also the contamination of groundwater, and the material does not decompose, although there are some new technologies where I think there are some things on the horizon that will help break down some of those. But what we're finding is PFAS chemicals are infused through the entire food supply chain in animals, in plants. And it's definitely regionally uh, regional concentrations. But if you look at a, a map of the U.S. in terms of groundwater contamination, it's it's prevalent everywhere in the U.S. So that's what I'm really concerned about at the moment, uh, our PFAS, in addition to the other additives that we use in our food systems. So how do we move away from that into something more regenerative? That's that 's going to be a challenge
0: indeed, and really briefly before we um, I want to talk about last before we go though, but what is the effect of gMOs uh, genetically modified organisms, what is the effect of the gMOs on human health and potential long term effects
2: Oh gosh, that is a really controversial topic and <laughs> <laughs> uh, from what I have read, I know there are hundreds of studies that have looked at different animal models, and the impact on the health and the well-being of of different animals. And what I think jumps to my mind, it's not necessarily the the GMO grain itself, but rather the other chemicals that are used. If you look at what's happened in Europe and many other countries where uh, Roundup, uh, for example, uh, has been banned not because of the GMO itself, but rather the impact of the herbicide on human health and animal health. And there's been uh, some studies that have been done in recent years that have looked at, you know, with the advent of GMOs over the last few decades, what has that done in terms of uh, herbicide use and types of herbicides that are being used? And yes, Roundup has been used uh, extensively, and unfortunately, Mother Nature always finds a way. And so we see plants that are now resisting uh, the active chemical, and so now we have to change the chemicals that we use. And in the balance, it looks like our chemical use is not declining, but actually increasing.
0: So it looks like, and I want to put a a fine point here, basically you're saying it's Maybe not so much the GMOs, or maybe it is, but I clearly hear you saying, though, that the GMOs give rise to use of other more harmful chemicals, pesticides and herbicides. And I think Ju- uh, uh, Judith mentioned that earlier. Yeah, that's
2: what I am seeing in the, in the literature as well.
0: You said it's not so much the GMOs, but what the chemicals you have to use to facilitate them and all of that.
2: And you see many countries are are banning uh different types of chemicals. One of the latest is the the uh, neonicotinoid classification of of chemicals, and those are associated with i guess in recent years there's been a lot of flurry about their impact on the the bee population, for example, but uh, they're a broad spectrum uh pesticide that impacts humans as well as... What, what are they uh, used?
0: Why are they used? What do they get rid of, or what's the purpose of using those?
2: So the interesting thing about pesticides that we use in the U.S. and other countries, you know, there's a sh- certain shelf life, or those chemicals in terms of their uh, viability to effectively decrease a specific insect population. Okay, so they're used and, to,
0: okay, basically it's an insecticide type of, um, of usage.
2: But insects evolve and develop resistance and so There's always something new on the horizon in terms of whether it's insecticides or or herbicides because weeds and and insects, they, they evolve and they develop resistance. And it may take a decade or a couple of decades, but eventually, you know, the the Roundup isn't always as effective. The it's traditional- not, indeed.
0: And I hate to cut you off, Kurt, but I want to just get one more point because so, we do need to get to, to Julia to talk about livestock. But it appears, Zo, as, as and I've heard both you mention as well as Julia, that in other countries a lot of, of uh, known chemicals and additives – that are known to be harmful are not used, but they're still used here. And I find that very interesting because we've always been told that we've got some of the best uh, protective systems and things like that, but it really does appear Uh, that with agriculture and produce, it's no longer that way. So maybe when I go into the grocery, I need to look for the produce from Chile and other places. Um, Anyway, we're going (laughs) to I want to go to Julia there now, though, to talk about the environmental impacts of uh, livestock. You know, how does livestock farming intensively or otherwise contribute to environmental impacts or mitigate? And we only have a couple of minutes left, Julia. Talk to us about livestock, as we haven't talked about it much at all today.
1: So this is another great example of where where we can go from literally one extreme to the other. Um, industrial agriculture, with its confined animal feeding operations or CAFOs, people often call them factory farms, can cause an immense amount of damage, um, polluting our water supply, um, really being inhumane to animals, um, releasing huge amounts of greenhouse gases. I mean, this is a incredibly damaging system, um, as, as much of it is done. And then you can do sort of reduction in damage, reduction in damage, reduction in damage, and then you flip into regenerative, where we, livestock, so here's the great thing, if you are talking to some about regenerative agriculture, one of the fundamental principles is animals have to be part of it, because there's no such thing as an ecosystem that doesn't have animals. There is no vegan ecosystem in this world. <laughs> And what you find is when you manage the animals in a way that mimics natural ecosystem processes, we can actually get. So, one measurement a farmer that we had keynote our conference a couple of years ago, Will Harris, did a life, have scientists do a life cycle analysis of his beef, and he had carbon negative beef. He sequestered enough carbon as organic matter in his soil through his grazing that it offset all of the greenhouse gases created by the animals and the processing into meat it was ne- it was it was positive impact on the environment from a climate change perspective and you know I could take half an hour and explain the positive impacts on the water cycle on the nutrient value of the food um, we can do it in ways that provide wildlife habitat that provide for for everything from little tiny things up to deer and and you know fauna, so it, it the one of the phrases people are using now is it's not the cow, it's the how. <laughs> I know, like that. And how you raise that cow?
0: I will. I like that. I'll have to look at that as we talk on next week's show because we're going to delve in next week to the economics of it all. Uh, which you guys have touched upon, because that seems to drive a lot of things. But I hear you saying, too, Julia, basically it's going back to the the traditional way that it was done. It's the healthy way. It's a productive way. You all have made us much smarter, and as always, there's never enough time for... Uh, complicated, but certainly eye-opening conversations like this. We have been today with Judith McGarry, who is with the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance Association, FARFA, and they're having their annual conference coming up in a few months at uh, Texas University in San Marcos. And we have been with Kurt Rosenstater, who is a professor at Iowa State University and a food engineer. Thank you all so much for making time to join us. You have made us smarter. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for to continue in our home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, But all of them add up, one way or the other, to the change that we each live through. Thank you so much. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Please join us again next week for more on food production, agriculture, and land use. And listen to any of our past shows on podcast wherever you get yours. Thank you.